Nehemiah chapter 6. Let us read uh, these 19 verses together this evening. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sembalat and Tobiah and Geshub the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sembalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Ahakaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answer them in the same manner. In the same way, Sembalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So, now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God... Strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahitabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand or understood and saw that God had not sent him, but that he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sembalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of Our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoahanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. 
Well, in our study of the book of Nehemiah, we have certainly come to the conclusion that uh, trouble is never uh, too far away. And we've stated it over and over again, when God's people do God's work in God's way, uh, opposition will indeed come. We saw it immediately in chapter 2 when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem ridiculed Nehemiah for coming to Jerusalem to help his Jewish brothers and sisters. And then again in Nehemiah chapter 4, they verbally attacked Nehemiah as well as the people of God in general with what we called psychological intimidation. Then we come to chapter 5 and it was internal, not external opposition that becomes the problem. It was a problem through significant economic opposition, uh, issues relating to the famine as well as their finances, and of course, an overall abuse of the law. Problem after problem, trouble after trouble, both external and internal. Now, with each of these attacks, we have seen God provide grace and peace. But Satan is not for one moment about to let up. He is that roaring lion, as Peter identifies him, always roaming around, prowling around, seeking someone to devour. And the vessels that he is choosing to use here in the story of Nehemiah are the men, Sembalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And those vessels are more than willing to renew their determination to undermine Nehemiah and the work of rebuilding the wall. So perhaps this is a good time to just pause and remind ourselves as to why they're opposing the construction of the wall. You see, an unwalled city is a vulnerable city. It's a defenseless city. It not only brings economic challenges to that people, but it opens them up to hostile takeovers, especially in a time where there's not much diplomacy between nations and leaders. So, so their enemies wanted nothing more than for Jerusalem to remain an unfortified city in order to keep them under their thumb, so to speak. But, but again, as we've mentioned, especially in the beginning of our study, we know this is not just about walls. This is about the glory of God. It's about God's glory being restored to the people of God in the city of Jerusalem. And of course, Satan's one ambition, regardless of their various strategies and the vessels that he uses, whether we're dealing with broken walls or broken people, Satan's one ambition is to always trample on the glory of God. And that is why we see Satan not letting up one ounce as it relates to his antagonism against God's man, God's people, and God's work. So as we consider the sixth chapter of Nehemiah, what I want to do tonight is explain the chapter under three headers and then give us three points of application to take home with us. The first header is this. We see, first of all, persistent opposition. Persistent opposition. Now the wall was nearly finished according to verse 1 of chapter 6. Only the doors to the gates were left to be finished. So in the minds of Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, it's, it's kind of a now or never scenario. 
If we don't act now, then we're going to lose our opportunity to gain an advantage over this people, over the city of Jerusalem. So looking at a now or never situation, they begin to employ several strategies, some of which they're reusing, but they're stepping up their aggression, so to speak. The first strategy is manipulation. Manipulation. Verse 2 says that they sent a message to Nehemiah, and here's what the message said. Come, come, meet us where we are, and uh, let us meet together in the plain of Ono, the plain of Ono. So the 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 name of the of the of the plain should give us at least a little bit of indication as to why this is probably a situation to avoid. Just say no to Ono, and uh, here they are inviting Nehemiah to come and have a meeting in this region. Now it's located about 27 miles north of Jerusalem, so Nehemiah is going to have to travel a little bit, and it sits in what we recognize today as modern day Tel Aviv. On the surface, it appears to be an invitation to a, to a friendly meeting, perhaps a concession speech by the enemy nations, or to initiate some type of agreement, whether it be regarding trade or commerce, especially since it was evident that the wall was going to be complete. Jerusalem would now be a viable presence in that region again. So, so on the surface, this is, a, this is a friendly meeting. Come, come down to the plain of Ono where we're at and let us meet together. Let us talk about this wall that you've built. Let's talk about Jerusalem being a fortified city now. Let's talk about how we can perhaps enter into some trade and commercial agreements as neighboring cities. But verse 2 makes it clear that these men were not being diplomatic at all. In fact, Nehemiah says at the end of verse 2, they intended to do me harm. This was no friendly meeting. This was no catching up and talk trade. It was their intention to manipulate Nehemiah to meet with them in order that they might hurt him. And we don't know to what degree that hurt would have involved. I tend to think, based on on all the aggression that it probably meant off with the head, so to speak. If we can get him off that wall and in our presence, we'll just, we'll just take him out. We'll send a nice friendly letter back to Jerusalem and let them know that we're sorry to inform you, but on the way to this uh, uh, treaty meeting, uh, he was attacked by robbers, left for dead. Uh, your leader is now uh, gone. Well, we don't know for sure, but we know that they intended to hurt him. Ne Nehemiah, however, turns the meeting down. He says no. But notice how many times they persisted with this manipulative tactic. Look at it in verse 4. Nehemiah says, they sent to me four more times in this way. Not once, not twice, not three. Four times they sent the same message to come to the same meeting and of course, Nehemiah says, I answered them the same way every time. That they were persistent, persistent. They, they wouldn't drop it. They wouldn't let it go. They were bent on manipulating Nehemiah to get what they wanted. But brothers and sisters, is this not exactly how Satan launches his fiery darts at us? One after another. 
He keeps on coming. He keeps on coming. He keeps on coming. In fact, we may have opened up chapter 6 thinking, man, Nehemiah and the people of God, they have been assaulted and attacked from every angle. It would be nice to see a little bit of relief in chapter 6, but there's no relief because Satan doesn't rest and his minions do not take time off. They are doing everything possible to withdraw the people of God from God's purposes in their life and he's doing the same thing to you and to me they keep coming they keep coming persistent opposition it's it's manipulation at its finest but that's not the only strategy they employ a second strategy that we note here is not only manipulation but accusation accusation verse five in the same way sam ballot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand This time, here's what it said, verse 6, in it was written, it is reported among the nations. Let me just stop right here and point out that this is a classic case of the whole people have been saying mess. You know what I'm talking about? It's vague. It's inaccurate that they're false accusations that are oftentimes raised by one or two people but disguised as the majority perspective. I mean, he really launches out big here. The nations, the, the world, everybody, everybody, they're reporting this, they're saying this, they, they're, they're talking about this, and from there it's slander. Verse 6, it's reported among the nations, you and the Jews intend to rebel. He specifically means here rebel against Persia, which is giving the authority and oversight to the Jewish people in this time. You you, you Jews, you intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you, Nehemiah, wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim on that day concerning Jerusalem. There's a king now in Judah. So now come, let's, let's talk about these reports. Let's talk about what everybody's saying. Of course, it's all a lie intended to usurp Nehemiah. Verse 8, he specifically calls them out. He said, you are inventing these things out of your own mind. This is not true. You're making this up. You're coming up with this. Never once has that been our intention. Never once have we desired those things. We are here because the king gave us permission to be here. More than that, we are here because God sent us here. We're not coming off the wall just because of what you're accusing us of doing. Manipulation, accusation. They try a third strategy, deception. Deception, verse 10 Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, he said, let us meet together. By by the way, we see a trend here in Nehemiah chapter 6, don't we? A lot of people requesting a whole lot of meetings with Nehemiah. That's why passages like Nehemiah 6 calls me to cringe when someone says, I need to meet with you. Because this is now the sixth time someone has requested a meeting with Nehemiah. And none of it was to discuss a raise, by the way. 
trouble is brewing. I need to meet with you. We need to talk. Sixth time this happens. Now it's Shemaiah. And he says, I want us to meet together in the house of God. We've now relocated from the plain of Ono to the Lord's house within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple. And here's why, Nehemiah, they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Essentially, what Shemaiah is doing here is offering a refuge for Nehemiah, a place where he would be safe from these attacks on his life. And he does so, interestingly enough, with spiritual talk. In other words, he used spiritual language. He used spiritual reasoning. He even used a spiritual place, the house of God, as to why Nehemiah should do this. Well, you know, the Bible calls Satan an angel of light. He'll use language that we're familiar with. And when he sends people to meet with you, they'll even speak it in spiritual terms. They may even do this in a place of spiritual ownership, a house of God perhaps. But it was all deception. Verse 12, Nehemiah points it out. He says, look, I know what's going on here. Tobiah and Geshem hired this man in order to trap me and stop the work from going forward. Deception, manipulation, accusation. And then we see intimidation. Intimidation, verse 9. Look at it, how many times we see this. They all wanted to frighten us. Verse 13, they did this so that I would be afraid. Verse 14, they wanted to make me afraid. Verse 19, Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. It's obvious, isn't it? Everything they said, everything they did was to create fear in Nehemiah's heart, to intimidate him and God's people. Why would they do that? Verse 9, they wanted to make them afraid thinking that their hands will stop from the work and it will not be done. They intimidate in order to terminate. And the strategies of the evil one are once again obviously clear. They are persistent and they are varied. And it's a reminder of where we stand in this battle against him tonight. Satan is not for you. He is against you. He is actively against you. He is bringing about whatever tactic he must to get you, yes, you, to drop your hands from God's work on your life, to drop your hands in raising godly children and dropping your hands in establishing a godly marriage, dropping your hands in ministry and service in the local church. If he has got you not using your hands... He's got you right where he wants you. Let's not talk about what you used to do in the work of the Lord. What are you doing now? Where do you serve in this church? Where do you serve? Where are your hands being busy building the work of God? You say, well, pastor, I don't serve anywhere. I'm not doing anything. Well, congratulations. You're right where Satan wants you. You have dropped your hands. And that's exactly what he was trying to get Nehemiah to do. 
because he is against you and he hates you. And more than that, he hates the glory of God. And we are a part of this life to bring God glory. Persistent opposition. But write down number two. Here's the second header. Faithful perseverance. Faithful perseverance. Now, Nehemiah weathered this opposition, as we would say. He, he persevered. Think about it. They attempted to manipulate him, but what did he do? He stayed focused on the work. Verse I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah believed that the work of God was the greatest work in all the world. He was not about to stoop down to their level and engage in any distraction that would have kept him from doing what God had put in his heart to do. I can read through this, Nehemiah says. Why should I pull away in disobedience from God in doing what I'm supposed to do where God has put me to do it and calm down with this frivolity engagement with you? Why should I do that? It's one of the greatest anthems of perseverance in all the scripture. I am doing a great work and I cannot come They manipulate him, or at least try to, but he stayed focused on the work. They falsely accused him, but he prayed. He prayed with dependence upon God for the strength to persevere through the slander. Oh, this should not surprise us. We've been seeing Nehemiah pray since we opened up the first few verses of chapter 1. He was a man of prayer. He depended upon the Lord. He knew that anything good in his life would never come of his own fruition. It would always be because of God's grace in his life. And so what does he do in the midst of the slander when they're falsely accusing him of rebelling against the king and trying to climb the ladder to be king and taking authority and lordship over people that hadn't been given to him? Here's what he does in verse 9. He doesn't slander back. He doesn't falsely accuse in return. He says, but now, oh God, please strengthen my hands. He faced what many of us face when perhaps we're being slandered and opposed and shot at. He feels himself getting weak. He feels himself falling under the pressure of trouble. And so he turns to God and he says, Oh God, please strengthen these hands. Help me persevere through the trouble. They tried to deceive him into compromising his work, but what did he do? He remained vigilant and discerning about his enemies' tactics. Verse 11, I will not go in. Remember, this comes upon the invitation to go into the house of God where he would be safe from them taking his life. He said, I will not go in, for I understood and saw that God had not sent him. God had not sent this man to me to give me this message. Now, I think this is a very important part of Nehemiah's character and his leadership. He was not a clueless leader. He exercised discernment about what was being said, understanding that not everything is as it appears to be. He knew that God wasn't in this invitation. 
He knew that God wasn't in this meeting. He knew that God had not arranged this situation. So he says, look, I can read right through this. I'm not going to be or to do what God doesn't want me to do. They attempted to deceive him, but he remained vigilant. They tried to overwhelm him with fear, but he yielded that situation to God. Verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sembalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. In other words, he yielded his opponents to the perfect wisdom of God. He committed it to the great judge. Faithful perseverance. He didn't come off the wall. He didn't quit. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He remained focused. He prayed, was vigilant, and yielded the whole work to God. And that is why we see, and here's the third header, finished work. We see persistent opposition, faithful perseverance, and then we see finished work or mission accomplished. Verse 15, so the wall was finished. And what's remarkable is that it was finished in such a short amount of time, 52 days. 52 days. I should have asked Dell prior to this message how many days on average it takes to build a house. Are you able to tell me that? Okay, so think about this. 200 plus days to build a new house right here in our backyard, and Nehemiah and the people of God built an entire walled complex around the city of Jerusalem in 52 days. It was remarkable. A project that many would never, thought would never be done, but is now finished. And as soon as it was finished, I don't know if you saw it in our reading a moment ago, but in verse number 16, Nehemiah's enemies have a little change of tune. And when all our enemies heard, of course, that the wall was finished, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Change of tune, right? They spent so much energy attempting to instill fear in Nehemiah's heart, but now that the work is finished, fear has moved into their hearts. Why? Well, for one, Jerusalem is now a stable city. It's a fortified city. It is a city that is now secure, something the surrounding enemy nations did not want to happen. They couldn't control them if they were unwalled. But now they're stable. Now they're secure. Now they're growing in strength. But there's another reason for their fear. Because Jerusalem's new status and condition gave evidence that this was something God did for them. Something only God could do. Look at it in verse 16. They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is the enemies perceiving this. It was such a remarkable undertaking that they were overwhelmed with fear, acknowledging the fact that what they just saw happen in the last 52 can only be explained in divine terms. 
was miraculous. It was incredible. All they could say was, God did this. God did this. This had to be a God thing. Nehemiah and the Jewish faithful finished the work that God had led them to do. And here's how they did it. With the help of their God. With the help of our God. The same God. That's the explanation of Nehemiah 6. Persistent opposition. Faithful perseverance. Finished work. Now in these closing moments, I want us to zero in on that simple yet profoundly encouraging phrase in verse 16. Where it says, with the help of our God. With the help of our God. Whatever's in front of you this evening. Whatever you're facing, I want you to know that God has helped you. God is helping you. And God will help you. That is a guarantee for his people. He has helped you, he is helping you, and he will help you, regardless of what it is. This is assured for God's people. Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our very present help in trouble. He is our very present help in trouble. Think about that breakdown in terminology for a moment. He is present in your trouble. He is present. He's not distant. He's present. He is helping you in your trouble. He is not watching you get into trouble. He is helping you in your trouble. And he is exceedingly, that, that's the word very here when it says a very present help. He's exceedingly, that is, he is greatly, incredibly, and without explanation. That, that is, to the, to the highest degree God is doing this he is exceedingly present he is exceedingly helping you now with that understanding and in connection with the story here in Nehemiah I want us to apply this text to our lives I wrote down these three things in conclusion one with the help of our God we will not be afraid with the help of our God, because he is present, because he's helping, and because he is doing this to the highest degree that he can, we will not be afraid. We will not be afraid. And again, I emphasize with the help of our God. Because fear is a natural emotion to which most of us quickly and easily turn. For a lot of us, it's not hard to be afraid. But it is a debilitating emotion. And that's exactly what Nehemiah's enemies were counting on. Four times our text describes the opposition of Nehemiah doing their best to instill fear. Why? Because they knew if Nehemiah gave in to fear, that his involvement in the work would stop. But with the help of God, Nehemiah did not give in to fear. Instead, he trusted God. Instead, he prayed. Instead, he yielded those attacks to the help of God. 
Can I speak plainly this evening? We cannot allow our lives to be governed by fear. And when I first wrote that down in my notes, here's how I wrote it. I cannot allow my life to be governed by fear. It's a natural emotion for me. It's very easy for me to be fearful. I came home last night to my wife after enjoying Taco Tuesday with her, expressing what I felt to be insurmountable fears that I had faced just yesterday. And even moments before I pull into the driveway. I have to regularly, as I did this morning getting out of the shower, say, Lord, with your help today, I will not be afraid. I'll not be afraid in my weaknesses. I will not be a afraid about how people might respond to me. I will not be afraid with what I can't do, what I can't accomplish. I'll not be afraid by what is in front of me. With your help, I will not be governed by fear because why? Fear controls us. Fear will paralyze us. Fear will rob us of seeing the fruit of God's work in our life. So with the help of God, we will not be afraid. We got to resolve that. With the help of God, I will not be afraid. I'll not be afraid to share the gospel with others. That, that's the issue of why we don't often share our faith with other people, whether it's people we know or we don't know. We're, we're fearful of how they'll respond. We're fearful that they'll ask something we don't know the answers to. We're fearful that we can't do it. But with the help of our God, we should not be afraid. We will share the gospel with others. With the help of God, we will not be afraid to embrace the struggles of parenting. With the help of God, we will not be afraid to endeavor in church ministry. With the help of God, we will not be afraid to give more of our tithes and offerings to the Lord's work. With the help of God, we will not be afraid of what others may even do or say unto us. That is the resolve of Nehemiah chapter 6, and it ought to be the resolve of our hearts today. With the help of God, we will not be afraid. The second thing I wrote down here is that with the help of God, we will not be distracted. With the help of God, we will not be distracted. I admit that it may very well be that one day God will inform all of us that the greatest sin of this generation, the generation of every person sitting in this room tonight, because you all have access to it and most of you are involved in it, the greatest sin of our generation was the sin of distraction. Distraction. Our phones and gadgets, our TVs and computers, our hobbies and relationships, they all, if they're not put in their proper order, can have a paralyzing effect on our lives. They can have a paralyzing effect on our marriages. They can have a paralyzing fact on our, effect on our church commitments, our Bible reading, our prayer, and a host of other things. 
with all the mindless scrolling that we do, and I'm including me in this, with all the mindless scrolling that we do for hours at a time, I think we're going to find out in the end on Judgment Day that we had plenty of time to nurture our spiritual disciplines, but we were just too distracted. We had to let everybody know what we had for supper that night. We had to make sure that we've watched all the reels at least twice before we go to bed in case we didn't miss one. we got to get the kids to that ball tournament on Sunday, you know, because they're, they're going to play in, in, in the majors one day. We've become so distracted. It's not because we don't have time to read our Bibles or we don't have time to volunteer in the church or we don't have time to pray or we don't have time to date our spouses. It's just that we're too involved in so many other things. Technology isn't the only distraction in life. All of these Meetings that the enemy nations were inviting Nehemiah to come off the wall in order to attend were just distractions to get him to stop the work. Again, Nehemiah was not a clueless leader. He was not a mindless leader. He exercised discernment. And discernment is a necessity that is not used as often as it's required today. <laughs> By the way, discernment is not skepticism. It's not cynicism. There's a reason why we put filters on my kids' phones. It's because, yes, I am trusting God, but I am also exercising discernment to do what I can as a parent to protect them from the evil one. It's not cynicism. It's not skepticism. It's not negativity. It's the ability to see things through the lens of God's Word. And it's not just understanding the difference between right and wrong, but it's also saying what is wise and unwise. What's wise and unwise. And in Nehemiah's case, it was his ability to look beyond what appeared to be harmless in these meetings to see the danger of his potential involvement. That if he goes and he engages and he has this coffee with these people, it's going to cost him his life. And worse than that, it's going to affect the glory of God on the people of God. What's the answer? The answer is staying focused on God's word so that distractions don't overcome us. It's staying focused on the will of God for our lives as parents, as followers of Christ, so not to be clueless. We're so naive. But all it, all it should take is just to remember for, for, just, for just a little while, just, just a little while, how, how you skirted the rules at your age. Their age, rather. We're so clueless. We're so mindless about the potential distractions that take us away from where God has put us and what he's called us to do. But with the help of God, we won't be distracted. Well, I can tell I've gone down a road that was not welcomed this evening. So let me just give you the third one and, and we'll, we'll go home. Now, thirdly, with the help of God, we will not quit. That's the third thing I, I wrote down tonight. With the help of God, we will not quit. Verse 3, I am doing a great work, Nehemiah said, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? 
Again, this, this must be our resolve. We will not be afraid. We will not be distracted. And we will not quit. I can't come down. I can't stop. I can't drop our guard. I can't quit. If I quit, the work that God has given for me to do in my life will cease. And God has redeemed my life. Just as he did those Jewish exiles. And he has put me as he did them on the wall of his work in order not to showcase who we are, but to showcase his glory to the world. You see, one of our greatest motivations for staying on the wall tonight is so that the world will see that what has happened through us can only be explained as divine work. They were afraid because they perceived, they acknowledged that God had helped them. You see, if our work as the people of God can be explained by human efforts, then it's most likely true that the work was done in our own power. But work done in our own power will not last. Parenting in our own power will go awry. So we do what we do with the help of our God. And with the help of our God, we do not quit. Because we want God to do God things in our life. that can't be explained by our education and our skills and our personalities. We want God to do things in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our church, in this world that can only be explained by Him I want to ask you, church family, to join me in praying more God-sized prayers. Prayers that will cause both you and others to conclude that in your life and in our church, God was most definitely involved. But for this to be true, we must not. We must not quit. Now, where's Jesus in all of this? Well, let me close by allowing you to consider this. Jesus was sent by God to do the greatest work in all the world. It wasn't building a wall. It was erecting a cross. A cross in which he would pay sin's penalty once and for all exchange our filthy rags for his righteousness. But that was not an easy journey to the cross. He faced persistent opposition. Satan employed many tactics to get him to avoid the cross. From his temptation to the assault in the Garden of Gethsemane to even until the last moment when observers would walk by the hill in which Jesus was crucified on him. And they would cry out, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. They falsely accused him. And they tried to manipulate, deceive, and intimidate him. They were ferociously persistent, but he faithfully and perfectly persevered. He stayed focused on his mission. He remained vigilant in all things. He prayed he committed his life to the will of the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. 
And as a result, just as it declares here that the wall was finished, so did Christ declare about the ninth hour. It is finished. The work was complete. And a change of tune began to take place. The enemies who were afraid looked at Nehemiah and the wall and they said, this had to be a God thing. And one centurion, at least one, looked up and said, truly this was the Son of God. You see, Jesus was not governed by fear. He didn't allow himself to be distraction, distracted and he didn't quit. With the help of his heavenly father, he finished the work that God had sent him to do, a work that can only be explained as divine. So where is Jesus in this? He is everywhere. He is the greater Nehemiah. So may we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who endured the cross, who despised the shame, who is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. May we look to him and consider him so that we don't grow weary and fearful and distracted. Because he persevered with the help of God. We can also persevere with the help of God. It seems surmountable, I know. But whatever you're looking at tonight, four crazy kids, economic pressure, family turmoil or just a dirty house and piles of laundry with the help of our God you can finish the work God has called you to do let's bow our heads for prayer together tonight